0: not proud but-
1: and and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write, two of them so far, more on the way at my website. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. Today, I'm holding space for Maureen Towns, We're going to have a little bit of a different discussion today, because today we're going to focus on the family. Addiction is sometimes said to be a family disease, and recovery is a family adventure, (laughs) a family undertaking. And Maureen understands this better than anyone, and she helps other families embrace the same. Maureen is a relationship mentor with over 25 years of nursing experience in both the public and private health care across Canada. I'm excited because she lives two hours up the road from me here in Alberta, and I never get to talk to other people <laughs> from my <laughs> neck of the woods, so this is exciting. So for Maureen, after experiencing mental illness and addiction with her own children, she founded Maureen Towns Consulting to help families struggling to care for their own loved ones and she works with parents to inspire them to rediscover themselves within chaotic and challenging situations. Maureen, welcome to The Bubble Hour. Oh, thanks, Jean. Thanks
2: so much for having me.
1: I spent hours reading your book, and it was so insightful and gave me a look at this from the inside. As a parent, I read it with my heart in my throat because I think as all parents We have moments where we're scared for our kids and we don't know what to do. And we think, oh, no, I'm in charge and I have no clue what to do.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And usually things work out. For you, that was a very long road before things worked out. It was a very insightful read and I have a ton of questions for you about it. But first, I want to turn the mic over to you and ask you to spend some time sharing your story so that our listeners can get to know you.
2: Well, thanks so much. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot about my recovery journey. And my recovery journey is not about recovery from a substance like alcohol, but more a behavior. And the behavior is codependent behavior. And so that's been my recovery focus. And when I say codependence, I'm talking about the over preoccupation with the behavior of other people, which a lot of us have, but it isn't an issue until you're losing yourself because you can't manage or control how other people are behaving. <laughs> and that was what I faced when my kids became quite sick. I started to become quite sick as well. And I, I kind of jokingly say, you know, if you, if you want to find a codependent mother, just ask her how she's doing and her answer will be all about her kids. Because it's very very difficult to separate yourself from how your kids are doing as a codependent mom. You know, I have four kids. We we had four kids in six years, so they're all close together. Bang, 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 and then you know we were kind of trucking along uh, raising a typical family until I would say our kids were about our oldest. Two boys were about 13 and 12, and we discovered that they were starting to use drugs. We found some marijuana in our oldest son's room, and, you know, we kind of expected that that would happen, not at that age. It was way sooner than we thought, but we thought, well, you know, times have changed, I guess, and so here we are, sooner than we thought, you know, they're going to experiment. We just have to be disapproving and put punishments in place and, and get things back on track. Over the course of the next six, seven years, what we saw in them was alarming. It wasn't alarming enough that we knew there was a problem, but it was alarming enough that we suspected that maybe this wasn't typical experimenting behavior. And combined with they didn't seem to care about the consequences that we put in place. So when we would say you're grounded, or we take your cell phone away, or whatever it is that we did, it didn't seem to be a deterrent. And so we took them for assessments, and and we were told that you know we didn't have quote unquote a problem we did just needed to stay consistent and stay the course and so that's what we did and we just kept trying that and What we saw was in our oldest son, you know, he was a high achieving, very academic kid that went at partying with the same fervor that he went at schoolwork. So, you know, it's like, okay, so he's a heavy partier. We got it, you know, almost a little bit proud of that because, you know, my husband and I met in high school and we certainly had our fair share of, you know, chugging competitions and that was all good fun. And so, you know, off he went to university. Where it started to appear to be a problem was with our second son finishing his last year of high school. His health was declining. His personality, I would say, was, in hindsight, I can say that it was drastically changing. You know, he went from being a really athletic, active, family-oriented kid to quitting sports, truant from school, which wasn't that shocking because he hated school, but then started to also to avoid the family, you know, lose weight. lost. Any interest in life after the summer after high school it seemed to be that the only focus was partying with all his friends before they went to university, but no focus really beyond that, which I found terrifying. You know, I I wanted to launch this kid successfully, and I, I really wanted him to get a post-secondary education and and go off and be independent. So we went from, you know, sort of trying everything to motivate this kid to telling him that he needed to move out. So he went through a period of homelessness. Then we did an intervention and sent him to drug treatment. Then he came home from drug treatment and had a relapse. All the while, our youngest daughter started cutting and self-harming, and we were kind of scratching our heads over that. And then the summer after all of that, our oldest son, while home from university, had a psychotic break, which is, you know, a serious acute uh, mental health emergency. Really, he has a complete dissociation with reality, and became quite paranoid and was hallucinating. And he couldn't tell the difference between what he thought was going on and what was really going on. And so, I ended up needing to be hospitalized. And so, this this sort of chaos went on in our home. I would say for about two years before we ended up in a family treatment program right here in Calgary, and that was the beginning of my journey to recovery. Before we got there, I felt quite hopeless. I didn't think there was a way out. I was very obsessed and preoccupied with their behaviors, Uh, really not looking at my own at all, not feeling like the system was a problem or the system needed to be addressed. I really thought that they needed to be fixed. And if you fixed them, then I would be fine, which is sort of right in there with a definition of codependence, right? I'll be okay when they're okay. I'm a I'm only as okay as my sickest kid. You know, I need to manage them. And when they're okay, I'll be fine. I'm this way because they're that way. You know, that sort of thinking. That codependence started for me when I was a kid. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad was abusive. It became almost a survival thing in my home to really focus on how he was doing so that I could tell, you know, sort of how safe it was for us. At the expense of, my own well-being. I mean, you just don't know how to look after yourself because you've never been taught. I would say it became a little bit more reinforced as an adult when I went into nursing. Again, my identity becomes really wrapped up in how well I can care for other people. And then, of course, when the kids got sick, it all sort of culminated in, I can't manage anyone and I'm doing terribly and I'm drowning in this and I'm I'm becoming someone I don't even recognize. I'm becoming someone I don't like, and I don't know how to change it. And so when we got into family recovery, and I only did family recovery because we had to. I only went to those meetings that were mandated because they were mandated. I I never would have identified that I needed help in changing how I saw things or how I responded or how I behaved or how I looked after myself or my relationship with my kids. I really would not have said that, and I probably would not have done the work had it not been mandatory. They wouldn't have provided treatment for our kids if we didn't participate, which is very smart because the whole family system needs help. I always describe it as, you know, you take a mobile family system and you tap one piece of the mobile, all of the pieces will start to swing wildly in an attempt to compensate. And that's what happens when you've got someone in the family who is not uh, functioning well, who's not doing okay. All of the relationships are affected and start to swing around wildly. So it was that family treatment program and being forced to talk about how i felt and what was happening for me and examine my own behaviors and the drivers of those behaviors that really was the beginning of change and meeting other parents and other families who were going through the same thing did provide me with a sense of hope you know i saw i started to see families that they laughed you know they could laugh at themselves and find joy in their relationships with people, whether they were, you know, in sobriety, quote unquote, sobriety or not. And I, I scratched my head. I thought, really? Like, how do you do that? How do you have a relationship, a loving relationship, without trying to control and manage other people? How do you how what is self care? How do you even look after yourself? how do you slow down and sit with your own feelings what what are like what are my feelings i didn't even know you know when i recount that thinking i see so many parallels with alcoholism and addiction and other behavioral addictions as well because i was using control and management and the behavior of other people really to distract myself from how i was doing i didn't know how to Look after myself. I needed. I was self soothing, with I don't know influence. I guess trying to have an influence on others. It probably would have worked if my kids had been typical. I probably just would have been a really controlling mom with successful kids, and I would have continued to obsessively be preoccupied with how they were doing. If you'd asked me how how are my kids, I probably would have given you my parenting resume. Here is all of their successes. Therefore, I am good. My journey journey to recovery from codependence you know, sort of started in 2013 and continues. I still need to focus on self-care. I still need to pay attention to where my relationship with my kids is. What, you know, am I, am I managing? Am I controlling or driven by fear? Uh, do I really believe that they're the livers of their lives, not me, and that I'm their mom and I'm here to love them and and cheer them on? Or am I slipping into telling them what to do, how to do it, maybe even doing it for them? That's my story, Jean. Thank you for for sharing. And I,
1: I thank you for your vulnerability because it's hard for parents to even accept that our kids are struggling, hurting, atypical, and that somehow it's not our fault. And then to talk about it and explore it and share the healing process is is really insightful. So a few things that you talked about in your book that I thought would be really helpful for listeners of this show were about the treatment system and about the family healing dynamic. And I want to dig into a little bit about that. You had a couple of experiences with your son in treatment, vastly different. Talk about your criteria for the first time you sent him to treatment, and a lot of our listeners are in the u s and are not so familiar with the geography of Canada, so you sent him to Quebec, which is across the country hours away. you can't drive to see him it's a it's a it's a day's journey to get there by plane, so not cheap and and not easy, but you were desperate so talk about your initial criteria. you were new to all of this, and you were really. Uh, afraid and
2: desperate to do something. So, how did that work out? Yeah, not great. <laughs> um, so, the reason why we thought that would be a good idea. First of all, I was I was really afraid to call him an addict. I didn't know what addiction was. I didn't understand it, and and the word scared me. I had a real bias towards what an addict was, and I my bias was that an addict was you know wandering around. Dirty, talking, muttering out loud, probably dragging a cart of, you know, all your prized possessions with you, marginalized in society, you don't have a job, you know, you're digging through dumpsters. That was my vision of what an addict was. And so when I, you know, looked at Ben's drug use, I, I could say that he had a problem drug use. I could say that he was using a lot of drugs. I thought, I, I wasn't sure, but I couldn't say that he was an addict. So I very quietly and very secretly and very fearfully locked myself in my office at work and googled drug addiction in Alberta or drug treatment in Alberta. And what came up was on the screen was a 1-800 number. And that 1-800 number promised to be an unbiased assessment uh, with recommended treatments. And that That seemed like a really good idea for me, because when I looked at things like Recovery, you know, Recovery Acres Society, 1835 House, Smart Recovery, it was all in a new language. I didn't understand what I was reading. I couldn't tell who the program was for. I couldn't tell if my son would qualify everything. You know, he was 18 years old, so he needed to self-refer he wasn't going to do that. So I was really, I really felt quite lost. And so this 1-800 number seemed like a really good option. So I called it Naivety. It was affiliated with a drug treatment center and the drug treatment center that it was affiliated with did have a location in Calgary, but they also had a location in Quebec. And the fear was that if, if we sent him quote unquote, sent him to recovery in Calgary, you know, he would discharge himself. So all would be lost. So the idea was if we send him across the country and they take away his identification and lock it up in a safe and his passport etc. he won't be able to leave or it'll be very very difficult for him to leave and get back home again. And that was a good thing for us because we didn't want him to come home before he was well because we thought he would just, you know, meet up with all his 18-year-old buddies who were using drugs and alcohol. So the idea of isolating him across the country seemed like a good idea. So we did a couple of phone calls with this drug treatment center, and in the last, you know, few minutes of one of the first calls, the, the gentleman said, we need to tell you this program is based in Scientology. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, fine. Like, I, I I, knew nothing about drug treatment, and I really didn't know very much about Scientology beyond what I'd read about Tom Cruise. <laughs> And I didn't care. Like, I thought, okay, fine. Like, you know, do whatever you want to do. Just fix him, fix him, keep him there, fix him and send him back when he's ready. And then there was also another little um, moment of strangeness on the phone with this drug treatment center in which, you know, we were asking some questions about their claimed success rates in which, you know, they said that they had 80% success. Based on what? measurement was my question, you know, like, is that a year after treatment? You know, is the criteria that they're drug and alcohol free is five years after treatment? Uh, is that only the people that graduate? Or is that just all? Is it everyone that goes into the program? Like, how do you measure that 80%? And in the process of asking those questions, um, this guy seemed to get a little bit agitated, and cut me off and said, we have the highest success rate of anyone in Canada. and And I thought that was Odd that he couldn't tell me more about that or didn't really want to tell me more about that. And but again, we were terrified. We were terrified. Ben was homeless at the time. We we felt like we were losing him. I really felt like we were a long way down the road to finding a treatment center. And I didn't want to start all over again. And I didn't know where to start, even if I did want to start. <laughs> So we ignored all those things and then hired an interventionist and on and on. Like you talk about expense, my God, we spent a lot of money that we didn't need to spend and plunked him on a plane and sent him across the country. And of course, the treatment center was not the safest or most effective out there. And they were, they were actually shut down by the province of Quebec for not meeting provincial standards on detoxification. So they were basically doing um, unmedically supervised detox. Ben was discharged before he was finished. And that was our experience with treatment the first time around. Very, very fear-driven. The urgency to save your child,
1: (laughs) which is understandable, it it almost clouds the vision. And of course, the treatment system is completely unknown. And so uh, it's easy to make mistakes and mistakes cost money. And yes, we're in Canada where, you know, we do have a healthcare system that that looks after people, but treatment is not free in Canada. So mistakes can be costly and, and that's hard. You did go on to have a, another experience with treatment for both your sons that was very good. I mean, not all treatment is bad. There's a lot of good programs out there. And I suppose it it could be said that some people might have done well in that other center as well. We don't know that. But what advice do you have for people that are trying to decide what to look for in treatment for themselves or for a loved one? How do we know what to look for and what what are the hallmarks of a good decision and what are the
2: questions to ask? That's a really good question. And, I, and again, back to the fear thing. Yeah, there was a lot of fear. And, I, you know, when I think about fear-based decisions in general, I don't know that I've ever made a really good, solid, fear-based decision. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the first things I say is, is get really honest about what's driving this decision. Is it fear or is it faith? You know, is it grounded in, in some evidence? Where's the evidence coming from? One of the things I recommend is asking lots of questions of the treatment center. So when we found a reputable treatment center, which was right under our noses, they weren't salesy. They weren't pushy. They, they took it slow. They did an assessment with us. We went in and answered some questions about what was going on in our home, and we looked at Ben's behavior, and they didn't say, yeah, he's got a problem. They said, okay, based on what you're telling us, it appears that he's a good fit for the program. That's different than, yeah, he needs to be here, send him right away. They, they did charge us for that assessment, which is fair. And one of the things they said is they were really honest about this program isn't for everyone. It's immersive. It requires a ton of commitment. The entire family has to agree to come. And if you don't do what we're asking you to do, we will ask you to leave. And then they handed us a large stack of papers with names and phone numbers of families that had been through the program. And they said to us, you should call people on this list. We don't care who you call, but call people, call more than one and ask them. What was their experience like here? And I thought, whoa, people are willing to talk to us about what their experience was like here. And you actually want us to do that. You want us to come in with our eyes wide open. So that's a good sign then, right? Oh, great sign. Okay. So if
1: if the center is willing to let you talk to some people that have been there that can share their experiences,
2: did you talk to people? Did that give you comfort? Yes, it did. It, It gave us an idea. I mean, people were honest. People said, yeah, this is a huge commitment you're so busy with the program that it really is at the exclusion of a social life. They were honest. They said, yeah, like, you know what, this is, uh, you're basically signing over the care of your kid to us. That's honest. I appreciate that honesty. It's scary, but it's honest. And so I think it was that honesty and transparency that made such a difference for us. We liked the idea that it was 12-step based. Now, I'm not biased towards a 12-step program, but the advantage of it for us was that there is so much 12-step support in the community that it would be very, very easy for our kids then to continue to sort of continue their treatment under that same theory forever. I mean, you could go to 12-step programs anywhere in the world. So that seemed really like a nice continuum of care sort of sort of thinking. The Scientology program wasn't. And so that seemed to be a big problem. So when Ben came home from the Scientology program, the community supports that we had were AA meetings. And so he would go to an AA meeting which is 12 step focused and it was a different language to him. He just was like, I don't I don't understand this program. You know, you know, in the treatment program that I came from said that willpower should do it. And here you're asking me to surrender. So his previous treatment was not at all in alignment with that. It wasn't and hard to access what was in alignment with it. Right, right. And so so some of the things that you look for is is I would ask lots of questions and I would I would trust your gut the way that someone answers the question not just the, what they say but how they say it matters you know do you feel like they're being defensive is there a little part in your stomach that says I don't know about this are they open and transparent can you see the facility can you walk around is there someone there that you can talk to about your loved one's care even if they're over 18 is there someone that can give you some ideas of where the treatment plan is going and what's going to happen I think you should look for some family education and or treatment because it is a family system issue. Like you said at the very beginning, if you pull someone out of a a system and change their thinking and behavior and then put them back in that same system, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain what they've learned when old triggers and old behaviors and old communication patterns are being used. And so I think you need to educate and treat the entire family. And so Grandma and most programs do that. We we hit, I think, the mother load of <laughs> weird programs. Really, we did. Most programs, even if they're not twelve step based, are great. Mm-hmm. Most programs have some real strengths and benefits. So it was,
1: it was bad luck to some extent that your first experience was yeah. with, with a, a treatment program that wasn't so great and, and was shut down for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Interesting to me I, and unusual. I haven't heard of too many programs that not only treat the person that's affected, but insist that all family members come in, I think twice a week for, for group and, and then have other components as well. Mm-hmm. Do you suggest if someone is going to treatment themselves, if you're supporting a loved one through treatment, and that family piece isn't a part of the treatment that you, that's available to you, do you suggest that families then add on counseling, family therapy, or some other additional piece to, to address that dynamic?
2: Yes, I do. And I would suggest if you're going to access counseling for, you know, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a spouse, a child, whatever it is, please find someone with addiction experience, because not every counselor out there has that. And I think that's an important aspect of the counseling and the perspective that you're going to get. There needs to be some understanding of addiction and the addiction process and the the dynamic and the communication that goes on within a home that is uh, struggling with addiction. I want to talk a
1: little bit about your shift in perspective as you went through this long journey. So four children, Mm -hmm. two of them have diagnosed mental illness and one has the dual diagnosis of addiction and mental illness, another one that has addiction. And your youngest child was one of those invisible kids who was more typical, but had the consequences of being kind of lost in the shuffle. Meanwhile, you, as a mom, were trying to do what a lot of us parents do: mm-hmm. try to juggle everything, fix everything. And you say in your book, "I used to believe that good mothers would naturally produce good children." And you talk about on the day before the intervention how you were cleaning your house because you had some delusion that you know you wanted to act like you had it all together, so you wanted your yeah. house to be clean and and things to present well and your view of the world was that it was important to be strong and that people that had problems were weak. (laughs) You had a superhero cape as a nurse. And so as, as all of this effort and strength and as your best efforts, failed to solve the problems, anger started to creep in. And, and for you, a part of the piece that you had to address in healing the family system was examining and, and healing your anger. One more thing that you wrote that I hadn't heard before, which I loved, anger is fear's bodyguard. Talk about your healing and how anger showed up to protect you and how it served you and how it didn't.
2: Yeah, I've also heard it said that anger is pain's bodyguard. I mean, angry, we call anger a secondary emotion because it's usually covering or or an umbrella uh, for some something really raw and terrifying underneath, which is excruciating pain. It hurt to see my kids hurting. It hurt to hurt me. Like I was in pain. I didn't know how to feel that. It was scary. I was almost afraid of feeling it too, afraid of admitting how scared I was. It almost felt like I would shatter. Honestly, I thought it's like a vase, like I'm going to shatter into a million pieces. And you can't fix that. You're permanently broken. Even if you try and glue all those pieces back together again, what if you don't find them all? What if it's never gonna look the same? Like it's I'm not going to be okay. That was my fear. I'm not going to be okay. If I can't manage this fix this the kids aren't going to be okay and therefore I'm not going to be okay I mean it was so scary and I had no experience sitting in unpleasant emotions I really didn't know first of all that they would come and go I thought that they would come and stay and that that pain would be unbearable and so I'd better keep moving So that's the fear. I mean, and 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 it came out as anger. I was so mad. I mean, how dare my kids put me through this? I really how dare they? I've done all the things. Like I've I've provided this home. I got an education. They've got opportunities. We have money. Like, why? Why? Why me? Why me? Why me? I've done all the right things. And I started to feel very victimized by them. I was angry with them for doing this to me in the end. I mean, that's how I felt when I got to ARC in Calgary, that, that second treatment center that I described. I was seething. One of the parent counseling nights, I got up and, and I said, I don't want them back. I never want to live with them again. They're killing me. Fix them, launch them. I was so done at that point. I just didn't see any hope in in a relationship with them, wanting to be around them. I I certainly didn't want to live with them. I thought we had tried everything. Honestly, I was just scared. I was hurt, discouraged, and I felt like a failure as a mother. I didn't want to look at that. You know, I was resentful that they turned me into a failure as a mother after all my efforts to be strong and capable and have this great relationship with them. And I just felt betrayed over and over and over again. So many broken promises, so many, like at that point, I was just, I was crushed. So that's understandable. I feel like that
1: is a very human response. Seems to me that the world might validate that and say, yeah, you're right. This is their problem. It's not your problem. It's not fair. This came on you. You've done everything right, which would feel great to have someone tell you that. (laughs) I certainly wanted to hear that. What's helpful? What's helpful to respond to that? All the years that I've spent in recovery and talking to other people in recovery, uh, I would find myself at a loss for words. What is the helpful response when someone discloses to you that their kids are struggling and that their family is hurting and that they're deep in the quicksand of the mess
2: Mm -hmm. well for and I I don't know if every mother wants this but I know that I did I wanted someone to say you're doing an amazing job Maureen Mm -hmm. like I really wanted someone to tell me that I I didn't I I I craved it I wanted someone to to tell me that, that that I wasn't alone too and I mean if you've not been through it it's hard to say that I think that you can say here's what I know though There are other people out there that are, that have experienced some of the things that you're describing. Let me help you find them. I I wanted some hope that things could be different. I was so scared. I didn't know anyone that had been, that had been through it. I hadn't talked to anyone that had been through it and come out the other side. I didn't, I didn't know that I could feel joy again, whether my kids were in recovery or not. And I remember being highly suspicious when I first heard that too. I was like, oh yeah, we're a, That's a nice platitude, sure. And same with the you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure. I was like, okay, is this something that we just tell ourselves because it's so horrifying to think that we actually did cause it? So now when someone comes to me, I mean, I can speak from a place of knowing. I can say, I get it. You're not alone. There is hope. I can hear in what you're saying that you really love your kids. I can hear in what you're saying that you've done a lot of quote unquote the right things. I can hear in what you're saying that your kids aren't typical. This isn't your average run of the mill behavior issue. There's something else driving that behavior that is beyond your control. You know, I could say those sorts of things from a place of knowing, but I think that even if you don't have that knowing as a parent or as a as a loved one, you can offer that you've heard that. You know, here's what I've heard. When when this kind of thing goes on, there's often an underlying issue. I can hear that you love your kids. I I trust that you're not the only one experiencing these kinds of issues. I would recommend that you find someone who knows firsthand what you're talking about. You need to find your people, that's what I say, and connect with them. There's a lot of value in that and that there is hope. There really is hope. One of the things you mentioned as angering
1: you was the commonly accepted and oversimplified mm-hmm. understanding that there's often a trauma connection with addiction, and that as a parent, you felt that that threw blame back on the parents to say, what did you do wrong? What adverse childhood experience did you allow that caused your child to be in this position? <laughs> and uh, of course, you naturally reacted against that yeah. with anger uh, publicly in a Facebook post, you said. <laughs> but over time, you you came to understand the notion of the trauma-addiction connection as being a little bit more broad, although it's easy to oversimplify it and misunderstand it, <clears throat> there is truth in it
2: as well. So can you talk about that for a bit for me? Yeah, for sure. I, I've i reread that bit about that Facebook post a few times and just laughed. And I, I think, my goodness, I was so mad that day, you know, when I saw this post on Facebook that said, did you know? There is a stronger link between uh, childhood trauma and addiction than there is between, I don't know, so something like sugar and diabetes. I can't remember the exact quote. but And I, I was so tired of that, looking for a straight line connection between this event and this outcome. And the shame. If everyone thinks this, if everyone thinks that trauma must be the root of my kids' struggle... And that I must have allowed it, like you say, caused it, allowed it, missed it. You know, there must have been something horrible going on behind closed doors in my home. This is further, you know, stigmatizing families with mental health and addictions issues and creating some of this, you know, isolation and shame. And I, and I, I'd been fighting that in myself, the belief that others thought this about me. And, you know, I, I since have, Have come to understand trauma quite differently. You know, when I saw the word trauma, and and this is my fear, that most people see the word trauma and they think abuse. And it doesn't mean that. I mean, trauma, now I I define trauma quite differently. I think trauma isn't so much about what happened, it's about our inability to process our feelings around what's happening. And so trauma can be almost anything that's not dealt with. You can experience um, an event in, in your day a seemingly otherwise benign everyday thing can happen. And for you, you may you may feel a lot of shame around it. And you don't know how to process this or process that or you don't process that or you have fear around it or an inability to work through it. And you stuff it down. And it gets quote unquote, stored for lack of a better word as a trauma, and so I call those little t traumas. There's big t traumas, little t traumas. Big t traumas would be the things like I had a car accident and I experienced some trauma around that. But the little t traumas can be those things that happen that you know you have some negative emotion or unpleasant emotion that you don't process effectively, and those those can have an effect on your health. And I, I guess where I re- really want people to open up. To the idea of addiction and and the quote unquote causes of it is that it's it's fairly complex. It's it's a very much a biosocial, psychosocial, spiritual result. It is an attempt to soothe feelings that we don't know how to deal with.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's it's an attempt to feel differently than we do. Sometimes uh,
1: there's no way for us to know Mm -hmm. what those things are because it's little things that happened to them that they internalized and normalized and didn't talk about. And you you say your son looks back on a moment during a baseball game where one of his friends was very rough with him, uh, you know, pushed his face down onto (laughs) the base. And, you know, that's not something he's going to come home and tell you about. Or if he had, you wouldn't have realized that what he felt was that he deserved that sometimes it's like death by a thousand paper cuts because it's all of these little things that, that we take in as true or in our, in our youth, we try to make sense of, and we don't have the tools for it. I found that really interesting, your perspective on that. Um, You also talked about boundaries versus rules as a parent of being something that you learn to define differently. And, and, So you started out with a lot of rules, so much so in fact that initial solution you came up for when he first began to show signs of struggling with drugs was that, you know, he gave him some hard rules. You do this or you have to go. And he didn't follow the rules. So he had to go. So he ended up living in his van Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that didn't work out so well. Yeah. So how, talk about the, the importance of the difference between boundaries, which are an I will statement versus rules, which is a, you won't statement
2: yeah right well, the, sometimes the the behavior that you're asking for might be the same, but what's different about a boundary or a rule is a boundary is about me. A boundary is about my health. A rule is about trying to manage your behavior. I really struggled with this at first. A boundary might include i, I you know I need to live in a home that is clean. I need to live in a home in which people speak respectfully to each other. I need to live in a home that feels like a refuge and that that has peace and quiet in it. And at the end of the day, that might mean that you move out. But a rule would be meant to change your behavior. You're going to behave this way because your behavior isn't really important to me, and I'm going to kick you out so that you change your behavior in order to move back in. And that's the way we approached boundaries. Initially, we really wanted to fix Ben. And we thought we were putting boundaries in place, what we were really doing is putting rules in place. And so every time he left, and then came back again and said, I'm, re- I'm ready to change, I'll do anything you want. I thought, aha, it worked aha, this is this was a good boundary because now he's ready to do what I want him to do. And it wasn't a boundary. It was a rule. And what I've learned since is that a boundary really is what's okay and what's not okay for me in order to be healthy. What What's the distance between, that I need between you and I so that I can love myself as much as I love you? One of the things you
1: wrote was it's the difference between saying do this or live without our support and instead learning to say, here's our best support that we can offer you and we hope you take it. Mm -hmm. So learning to leave the power with the other person Mm -hmm. (laughs) when what you want to do is control and manipulate them into being okay so that you can be okay. Exactly. How did you come to peace
2: with that? I had to come to a place where, where I believed that our challenges in our lives, me included, are a gift. And we get to have them. You can't take them away from people. It's not fair to remove challenges from people. It is fair to support them through the challenge. It's not fair to remove it, rescue, save, take on, all of that. So, so I, I started to believe that, okay, my kids have got a path to walk here that includes challenges and adversity and things to overcome, just like I did and i need to let them have that it's not my job to prevent it and second of all they get they get to choose how and when that happens it's not really up to me they need to come to it on their own they get to own all of it and i need to let it go it's not about me i need to focus on myself and my own care right i need to start to role model the self care that i'm asking them to take on for their for themselves so i had to believe that my kids had a life to live and that i didn't get to decide how it went. I had to let go of the outcome of all that. I look back at my own life and it's you know, it's had lots of adversity and it really has been a gift. It's all it's all helped bring me back to myself. I've gotten to work through it. I've been allowed to to fail. I've been allowed to run at it when I'm ready. So I need to let my kids have the same. And so that means if you're struggling right now, you're allowed to choose to stay in that until you're ready to choose something else. It's a little bit about respect, I think, too. Like I I, I call it the dignity of choice. Who am I to say that what, what what you're living or what you're doing right now is quote unquote wrong? It's your path. It's your journey. You get to have it. What I don't want to lose is my relationship with you. And so I get to really sit down and examine how does that relationship look when I'm at my best? So if you're living, let's say you're living on the street and I want to have a relationship with you. Can I go downtown, find you, bring you a coffee? And sit and have a visit with you, and be well. And if I can, that's awesome. Then I'll do it.
1: Do you think when you were in the thick of this, and it lasted for years, <laughs> it was almost like popcorn popping? You know, one one would go uh, would it become symptomatic, and you would start to deal with that one, and then oh no, now this is happening over here, and this other kid is. So yeah. was, I'm sure there was. A, yeah. I don't know how many years did it span, Maureen? Six years or so there.
2: Yeah, I would say 6 or 7.
1: Overlapping, one would get okay and then another one would become symptomatic and uh, and so it almost must have felt like you were hurting cats for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, it's it's long and it's exhausting. So when you were in the thick of it, I mean, now you're looking back on it and the solutions sound simple. But of course, when you're when you're in the midst of it and you're having all the mm-hmm. body reactions and the emotional reactions, it, it doesn't seem that simple. Do you think you could take the tools that you have today? Uh if if you mm-hmm. went through it before and your your reactions and your emotions were say a 10 out of 10 on the scale of parental freakout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were <laughs> taking all the tools you have now it's I, i'm guessing it still wouldn't be a breeze to go back and navigate no. those years so absolutely not no what 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 do what do we need to aim for when we are in the midst of navigating a family crisis even with all the best tools under our belts what does success look mm-hmm.
2: like that's such a good question oh one thing at a time okay one thing at a time i mean you're right like throw me back into you know 2014, 2015, 2016. And uh, you know, even with the knowledge that I have now and ask me to integrate everything I know now, I couldn't have done it. I needed, I needed one thing at a time. And I and I have come across families that are trying to do it all. And I and I like I I'm gonna deal with my own childhood trauma and, you know, my child's trauma and I'm gonna deal with and I'm like, ooh, ooh, that's a lot of rawness. Let's put you in a position where you're not so raw when you're trying to deal with triggers from your kids. Like it's holy smokes, man! That's a lot to take on at once. And so I try like a little bit of education. Let's let's look at one little behavior change at a time. Let's respond differently or not at all instead of negatively. You know, once this week. So when we're learning validation skills, for for instance, and and. It's tough. It's tough to learn validation skills if this is not a tool in your toolkit. I heard this from someone else. I didn't come up with this on my own. If you can refrain from being reactive when someone comes at you with an emotionally charged statement, like it's all your fault. You're the reason I'm so miserable. I just want to die. You know, something like that. And you can, instead of reacting, um, just maybe hold your tongue and nod and look them in the eye and or, or say, man, it sounds like you're you're feeling really hopeless. You know, if you can do that once in a week you're killing it. You know, if you've never done this before and so one thing at a time.
1: Is it um, something that people can really do on their own? Or is it, uh, I would guess it's much easier with some kind of counseling or guidance or someone else helping to direct and prioritize these small steps, small goals. I know that you found Alanon helpful as a family member. So we have already talked about that. Yes, family counseling is very mm-hmm. important, and that reaching out, you know, as a parent, even if your, even if your child isn't willing to seek treatment or seek, or your family member isn't willing to engage at the level that you're ready to engage in, it's still helpful for you to go
2: right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And thank you for that. Because I mean, if I, if I could have done it on my own, I would have, I certainly tried, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, as we say in 12 step programs, your best thinking got you here. I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it on my own. If I'd had the knowledge, um, I would have done it. Mm-hmm. If I'd had the, if I'd had the wherewithal in the moment, I would have done it. It's not for a l- lack of trying and it's not for lack of love. I had lots of both, but I needed help. I needed help to really get clear on what was driving my own behaviors. I I had trouble figuring that out. I had, I wasn't the most emotionally literate person. I really needed help in identifying some of the feelings that I was having. I needed constant reminders that it was going to be okay. <laughs> I was going to be okay. And I I often needed help in seeing clarity around Where I was taking on other people's things versus focusing on myself. And I had to practice asking for help. I wasn't very good at it. Most codependents aren't. We're, We're used to giving help. We don't accept it. Well, we're not worthy. You know, all of that whole story. Noticing when things weren't going so hot. Taking a time out practice the validation skills, and a lot of education too. I I really did need to develop some understanding and compassion and empathy for what my kids were experiencing so that I could respond that way to them with compassion and empathy so that I could rebuild the relationship with them that I've always wanted to have, one of loving support. This really is my next
1: question for you or piece to talk about your daughter part of her symptomatic behavior was self-harming you describe walking in on her mm-hmm. in the middle of her acting out and and being quite horrified and upset and scared and angry at what you saw mm-hmm. and again that's a natural human reaction and you know you want the child to mm-hmm. stop and you want you want this to not be what's happening you have since learned that there are more helpful responses in that situation, but it, it takes practice and discipline because like I said, it's human nature to respond with horror when we see someone we love doing something that is frightening and upsetting to us. So what is it that's more helpful and and how mm-hmm. can we train ourselves to better respond in those situations?
2: Yeah. Thank you for bringing that, that story up as well. So the f- so the f- first example story that I give you of when I responded with horror and and anger, and I was quite abrupt with her and told her to clean herself up. It was about eleven p.m. Calgary had flooded, everybody was under some stress, and our son was hospitalized with another suicide attempt. And we'd been up at the hospital all day visiting with him, trying to behave as though things were normal, and it was so abnormal. It was so stressful, and so we got home you know, and I'm breathing in and out and I'm trying to get ready for bed and come to grips with the fact that this was a crappy day. And my daughter disappeared into her room and I had the sense that, you know, she was disappointed with something we had told her that she couldn't do. And I had a sense that she was probably going to harm herself. And, and so in attempt to manage that, I, you know, abruptly opened the door to see what she was doing. And of course she was in the middle of cutting and, and it was really rough and, uh, again anger is pain's bodyguard anger is fear's bodyguard and that's what showed up you know it was terrifying and i i was m- mad at her how could she again how could you do this to me <laughs> which i just laugh at now i'm just like oh man that was so misguided but um and told her to clean herself up and and i think i probably contributed to her shame in doing all of that you know my disgust uh my anger you know, almost a punishing approach, you know, clean this up and go to bed, you know, just mad at her. And then what I learned was what she really needed was to be Validated. I mean, she was having a lot of feelings that she didn't know how to deal with. And that is sort of the basis of why she's harming herself. She's, she's attempting to focus and numb out the neural pathway that is overwhelmingly unpleasant with whatever feelings she's got. And so she's trying to physically load up that neural pathway with a cut in her skin a sensation that is stronger than the feelings that she has and and so what i needed was to see that to validate that my goodness i love you i love you and i can see that you're hurting let's have a cuddle and and i'll tell you that i believe in you and i know that you're going to get this like i know that you're going to work through this i know you're working hard in therapy and i know that you know this must be really hard or you wouldn't be doing this right now what you're feeling must be really overwhelming. And I'm here for you. I'm, I love you. And I'm your mom and I'm here to support you. And that just was a, such a game changer. It almost brings tears to my eyes to think about it. I, you know, she felt seen. She felt heard. She felt supported. She didn't feel shamed. She felt safe. Oh my gosh. I just wish I'd learned that sooner.
1: The, the other instinct we sometimes have, if, if manipulating the person by being angry at them doesn't snap them out of it, to cheer them up. Look, I baked your favorite dinner. Um, let's go for a walk. Here's a puppy. Here's a new purse. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a, a therapist suggest to me one time that trying to cheer up a depressed person is like if someone is sitting in the bottom of a hole in the dark... And you shine a flashlight from the top and say, come up here. You know, that's not helpful. What you really need to do is, is put a, a ladder down into that hole and then sit with them.
2: Mm-hmm. And cl-
1: climb down there and hold their hand and meet yeah. them where they're at. And that's so hard to do. And it, it really does go against our instincts, I think, as humans. I think it's so important to know that they're seeking comfort and people listening to this show that are are dealing with alcohol addiction know that reaching for a drink is reaching for mm-hmm. comfort. These are our coping strategies and we get deeply invested in them to offer someone that's hurting a different form of comfort, mm-hmm. which is your companionship and your love and your acceptance is Not always instinctive in the moment of crisis, but it's what needs
2: to happen. To the other piece that was critical in that was my level of self care. So when I am stressed, when I have not been looking after myself, I have a lot of trouble meeting people with empathy and compassion. I tend to get triggered easily and I tend to react instead of respond. I have trouble being present fully for other people's experience. And so the first example where I was abrupt, I was, I mean, I was worn down that day. I was not well. I was, I had not been looking after myself. I I didn't know what that even meant. The second example where I can, I can pull out the empathy and compassion and see what Allie's experiencing rather than just noticing how I feel that experience came from self-care I had learned a little bit about how to look after myself. And so when I start to see myself be judgy or abrupt or critical, I feel like a victim. I, those are all good cues for me that I am not doing what I need to do in looking after myself so that I can show up fully present in the relationships that I care about. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Very, very hard to do. It is. Especially if we identify as busyness is um, worthiness yeah, and also putting on a good show of how hard we're trying.
2: (laughs) And and I think often we numb with busyness too. Oh, that was my addiction. Yeah. I'm going to like, if things get too calm, like I said, at the beginning of the book, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get a degree. You know, I don't know how to be content. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And and your kids saw the difference in you, right? They said you weren't quite so scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. All that strength, all that drive—I thought was so reassuring because I was a strong mom who had control, and I had the reins, and I got this. I'm going to manage this, guys. Don't worry. That apparently was terrifying. Yeah. Really, what they were looking for is some humanity. <laughs> That I was afraid to show. I thought that meant that would make them feel more insecure. I know mean, it would make me feel more insecure and uh, ineffective. And so I, I just projected that onto them.
1: You closed the book with something that is very brave. And that was that you invited each of your children To write a contributing piece to the book. So you told your family's story Mm -hmm. and you invited each of them to add their perspective to it. If you were controlling and manipulating the narrative, this wouldn't have worked out. So clearly you did some healing in order to allow this, (laughs) but I'm curious how it felt for you as
2: you read those pieces for the first time. Oh, gosh, how it felt. I beam honestly with pride the one that was hardest to read was Sydney's that was a hard one Sydney
1: is your child who didn't struggle the way her brothers and sisters struggled but she was quiet in her room a lot while all this was going on didn't require or demand the amount of energy or attention attention that everyone else was getting so mm-hmm. You, in reading this, then that would have been a window for the first time into Mm -hmm. her experience. So I just wanted to make sure our our listeners understood that. So talk a little bit more now about how that felt as you read her words.
2: Poor Sydney. And Sydney's actually the third of four kids. Um, She certainly was last in line when it came to attention, though. And and you're right. It's because she didn't demand it. She went to her room and spent most of her time alone. And I rationalized that, saying that she was an introvert and that she was fine. And I honestly was just grateful that she wasn't trying to kill herself. Like, it's you know, she wasn't disrupting the home and she wasn't trying to kill herself. She went to school. She got good grades. She came home. She went to her room. She sketched a little bit, listened to music, watched Netflix in her room, you know, and I and I kind of identified with the need to get away from the chaos too. I thought, you know, I don't blame her. My God, the place is nuts. I don't blame her for hiding in her room. What I didn't do was really spend any one-on-one time with her in a meaningful way and I didn't really, you know, I, instead of opening the door a crack and and letting her say what do you want? I'm fine. Good night. You know, I could have gone in and maybe sat down with her, maybe gone on a drive with her and paid some attention to her. The reason why I reading her account of those years was so hard was because it was so much harder on her than I thought. I thought she was doing okay and she wasn't. Her chapter's called Misery and Solitude and I mean Ugh, my heart sunk just at reading that. She was miserable and, and really struggling with depression and, and some self-harming behaviors as well. I just didn't know about it. She hid it away. And um, she did that because, uh, you know, she, she didn't feel like her problems were quote-unquote bad enough. We were already clearly overwhelmed and she didn't want to contribute to that. And so she just kept to herself. And, and what's heartbreaking is that I can't go back. I can't go back and change it. You know, those were critical years for her. They were formative years for her. And, and I missed it. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that she suffered alone. My relationship with her today is good. She's a sweetheart. <laughs> she's funny. She's smart. Uh, she's independent. She's still an introvert. And that's okay. But I wish I had been more available to her. That's why it was heartbreaking. And so for the other kids... I knew a lot about how they felt because we've been through so much treatment with them. And I'm just so, so proud of them, honestly, all four of them. I just, one of the things I say now is that I'm so grateful today that I didn't get to control everything and I didn't get to script how everything went because they're way more awesome than I ever could have predicted. I wouldn't have scripted them this awesome. (laughs) They're so great. And I, I love spending time with them. They would have been safer. (laughs) had I scripted it, but not as, not as fun, not as interesting, not as outrageous. They're fun.
1: Maureen, how can people find you and get your book and connect with you if they would like to
2: reach out and follow up with this interview? They can find me at my website, which is maureentowns.com. The website really is a portal to everything. I mean, you can find the book on Amazon, but all of the links to, to where the book is for sale is on the website as well. And also the links to to my podcast is, is on there. And the podcast is called Broken Open, same as the book. So that's where you can find me and I'll do a consult with anyone. Honestly, I'm happy to talk anytime. I'll always offer you some resource that I think would be helpful and, and within a budget. So there you go. And your podcast. Tell me briefly about your podcast. Well, I started the podcast a year ago, and the podcast is called Broken Open because everyone has a story about a time when they experienced some adversity that at the time felt like the end of the world, that in hindsight was a real gift and has taught them something about themselves and who they are and what they're capable of, Ridley, And uh, so the, the podcast is an opportunity to tell those stories. Maureen Towns, thank you for being here today. It's been great talking with you. Thanks, Jean, so much for your time. So
1: that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you. Until next time, take good care.
0: I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on. The dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your power Just want to be free from power. Oh yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession. Every year. the person you should talk to is looking at you in. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, I did that Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm free When you say I'm old, I did that Not proud I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be